Hello, and welcome to another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. When I arrived as pastor of St. Patrick's Church in Ravenna, New York, one of my parishioners was familiar to me. It's because she had been a sort of local celebrity after a run for Congress in 2008. I had seen her on the television news, and I knew her name. I had no idea that she would be a weekly and involved parishioner at my new parish, but getting to know her has been a delight for many reasons, not only because it has connected me to a world that I have no other entrance into other than through this person, but also because her life has taken many twists and turns that have pushed her to the edge of her resilience. I am joined today by Tracy Brooks, who is here to speak with us about running for Congress, about falling in love and committing for life, about loss, and about illness. And what she has to share has a lot of strength for all of us who have the privilege of listening. Tracy, we're so grateful that you joined us here today. And your story has so many chapters. Let's get right to the beginning of it all. Tell us about your childhood and about family life growing up. Sure. Thank you first for having me, Father Scott. I don't know that my life is that different than most anyone's, but I'm happy to share my experiences with folks. Um, my family was loving and full and um, full of tradition and opportunities. I have two sisters. My parents were married the entire time we were growing up, um, and we were very lucky to be given wonderful opportunities to try all different types of activities, leadership responsibilities, music, art, sports, and find our niche. And so um, the love of large family, large uh, Italian family and Irish family, so the traditions that go with that, hmm. as well as the, um, the work that it takes to be part of a large group um, was really helpful in shaping who I would be and how I'd be able to face the world as I got older. You were a uh, middle child, but uh, never a wallflower. What was it like growing up in the middle? <laughs> So I always blamed everything on the fact that I was a middle because my mother was an oldest and my father was the youngest. And so I was the only one in the whole family who was a middle. And I often tell people that I had two older sisters, an older sister and a little sister who wanted to be the big sister. Um, <laughs> it was my sisters and I have a wonderful relationship. We always did. Um, we always looked out for each other. My parents did a great job explaining to us that we were lucky to have one another and that we needed to have each other's backs. And today, as grown women, we still have that same kind of affection for one another and love. It strikes me, too, that one of the great things about your your childhood for, for rounding a person out was the fact that you grew up in a, a large suburb of Albany, New York, and a place where there were a lot of opportunities and lots of uh, healthy competition among the young people. You went to a, a renowned uh, public school that uh, has a great reputation. But that the roots of that, the family that you spoke about, the Irish and the Italian and the large uh, connected extended family, they all lived in a not so far away, but very different, somewhat rural industrial town on the exact opposite side. So can you talk a bit about how you, you wound up living in, in multiple worlds growing up? 
Well, I don't know that we knew any different. Remember, you know, you only know your own reality as the reality that you think everybody lives in. So mm. I don't know that we looked at it that way because this was, you know, this was our life and this is how we grew up. And so we didn't think about the fact that not everybody had to go to their great-grandparents to prove that they went to Mass in the morning. So, you know, my great-grandparents lived down the street from church, and although we would go to Mass in our hometown, we would drive to Ravina and check in with my great-grandparents so that they knew that our family had been to Mass, even though we didn't always go to St. Patrick's. Um, but having had that as a young person, when my sisters, you know, my parents returned to town um, after we all got out of college, and um, my older sister and I live, um, you know, further north of my parents, but we come down and share mass with my parents and always have mm. um, once they move back to town because A, they are who we, you know, share mass with and B, it was great to be back with the family. So although we didn't grow up in Ravina, I have lived in Ravina for a time. You know, this was a home for us. Um it was a home away from home. We always felt connected and part of, of the town, even though it wasn't where we went to school. Going to school in a large um, suburban school gave us, all three of us, great opportunities to spread our own wings and find our own path. The three of us took very different paths. Mine was um, very engaged in athletics. I, I lettered in four varsity sports and also in student government. And mm. sort of those, those underlying and underpinning um, experiences, you know, move forward into my career. So I would tell you, you know, being a lawyer is really just, and being involved in um, political campaigns and the like is really just athletics for out of shape grownups who um, <laughs> can't play basketball anymore. I mean, you know, they're, I still am involved in sports, but not the ones I was in high school. But, you know, it, it gave me a good foundation on how to be part of a team and how everyone rises together as a whole and that everyone has a role. So um, the big school gave us great opportunities for leadership right from the beginning. Oh, fantastic. Now, I, I, the, the great-grandparents who were asking for uh, proof that you'd been to church, were these the <laughs> ones you called Mima and, and Peepa? And but also my grandparents were Mima and Pipa as well. So there are multiple generations of Mima and Pipas. Um, and even my mother's um, brothers and sisters, we have a Mima and Pipa as well. So, mm. um, yes, but they lived sort of diagonal from the school that connected to the parish, um, my great-grandparents. So, so beautiful. Tell me, does that mean, were you pretty religious and involved with faith throughout your life? Or was, was it an obligation that you just met because the family held it for you? Um, I would tell you that I didn't know how significant religion and faith were in my life until I went to college. So my parents, um, anytime we questioned or didn't understand why life or the world unfolded the way it did, generally gave us a faith-based explanation for what was happening in the world. I remember being three and being told by the next-door neighbor that there were people who were born without arms or legs, and I just really couldn't believe that God would make somebody in, a, you know, without arms or legs or, you know, in with a disability. I mm. hadn't seen it. I was little, and so I went home absolutely astonished and asked my mother about it, and 
she explained to me why the Lord might make somebody that didn't have all of the pieces of their body that I had and why they were special and unique and and what their role in in the bigger picture would be and how how although different very purposeful and meaningful the way mine was and so mm. my parents explained hard life lessons oftentimes through um the lord and the lord being purposeful in in his create in in the lord's creation and so um i would tell you that faith is just a, a basic underpinning mm. to my understanding of my life and how i move through my life um and it was based on an outstanding foundation that our family gave us. Um, but also I found reinforced in the bigger world, you know, when I went to college. So, you know, you get to college and I actually ended up in a Catholic college having gone to a public school for elementary and high school. And friends would ask questions and I parroted back the explanations that I'd been given as a child. And all of a sudden, all these people who I thought were much more religious and faithful than I were thinking that I was much more faithful than religious than they were. So it was uh, a mutual admiration and, and sharing of growth together when I got to college. What did you major in? I majored in sociology. Um, I had decided early on that um, law and advocacy were a place for me um, to be able to explain why bigger concepts should happen to help and support people was a direction that I wanted. And I thought sociology was a great way to study why and how people thought and behaved and responded. And well, so at that time, what would you have said was your dream job? Um, well, I hadn't decided at that point that being elected was the role that I wanted, but I knew it was somewhere, it was definitely in the law and whether it was litigation, I had learned enough about that field to understand all the avenues that were open to me, but I just did know that studying law was the direction I wanted to go. Mm. But I also knew helping people was important. So when I got out of college, I spent a year in a volunteer service corps um, working with pregnant and parenting teenagers, and I was really trying to decide between going to law school or being in human service work. And it was the year after um, my volunteer service year, which was giving back because I'd been so blessed to have parents who were able to help me uh, obtain a college education without any debt. So um, I thought giving the first year back to um, it, back to society was important. The second year I worked with um, pregnant women again in an urban setting, and it was at that time um, that there was a policymaker who decided that teenage pregnancy was somehow a disease mm. and needed to be cured as opposed to a condition that needed you know, some heartfelt thought. Um, and it was that policy that made me turn to look at elected office as being at a table where you got to make decisions and choices and policy that help society, how government makes society better and works for the people that you govern, not, not works at the people that you govern. So you did not get into politics from a place of pessimism. It it was idealism. That, oh yes, that's, yeah. which is a the really... government should work with and for people, mm. not the other way around. 
Beautiful. Boy, I, I think all of us are craving leaders like you're describing. <laughs> oh, I am too. <laughs> craving, yeah. In, in an age where politics has gotten people so cynical, you know, that's, it's really, that's remarkable. It's remarkable. So you went to law school. I would imagine that law school in itself, from what I hear, it sounds like one of those things like, uh, it reminds me of the word marathon where you, I mean, it's a hard, that is a hard field to enter. Not only is law school grueling, I, I've just heard from talking to friends who've gone through it, but then you have to pass this, the bar exam, which is incredibly, it, it, it gives you a status as a very qualified professional, but they don't make it easy. How, how was that for you? Well, what I would say to you is like anything, when it's what you're doing, it's what you're putting everything into. So you don't necessarily realize it's grueling or hard until it's over. Mm. And so I do remember the day I woke up after my last exam looking back thinking, oh my God, that was the most ridiculous experience of my life the last three years. And now I need to study uh, to take the bar exam. But um, I appreciate the people who helped me and were part of my, my legal training, um, I found it necessary to not only go to school, but to, to take advantage of all the opportunities that law school had to provide. So whether there were competitions, I won a fellowship, so it was published. I did a lot of internships and clerkships to rule out the kind of law that I would or wouldn't practice. And the irony is where I've ended up was actually none of the none of the work that I did in law school, but it's turned out to be a great marriage for what my skill set is and where where things come easy to me versus um, parts of, you know, the practice of law that were more difficult for me. Um, mm. And so I loved, I loved litigation, um, which was taking the laws and making sure that people were treated fairly. Mm. But I actually now appreciate writing the laws and doing a better job at punctuation <laughs> to ah. make sure that the laws are actually going to work for people. So um, I enjoy very much being a part of crafting policy and law now. There's a, there's a great story that is told, a uh, one of those always and everywhere true metaphoric stories, like a, what we would call in, in our tradition a parable, that helps to, to demonstrate the, the difference between these things. They, it's often described as the difference between charity and justice, where there are some people, and and everybody has a job in in the in the role of of charity and justice. But some people will find out that there are a lot of dead fish in a stream, and what they will do is go over to the stream with a skimmer net and get the fish out, and take the dead ones and bury them. Take the uh, the ones that are sick but still still alive and bring them to an aquarium where they can be nursed back to health. There are others who don't spend any time doing that because they want to go further up the river and find out what is killing the fish. And I just think that's such an interesting distinction of, you know, there are some who want to directly serve case by case situations. And we call that in the church charity, but there are others who say, I want to look at the root of this. I want to find out what system is causing this and they go, you know, where the sausage is made, you know, to, to the yes. justice. And it strikes me that you've got a, you've got a hunger for both and, and they've, uh, they've both been a part of, of your journey. Um, when did you talk to me about pivoting from law into politics? What was that sure. transition like? 
So I actually thought that I would be much older and more um, established in my career when I would actually run for office. I used to walk across State Street every day to my law firm and look up at the Capitol and say, one day I'm going to work up there. Hmm. And I actually, you know, being on the federal level was really where I wanted to get, but knew that the state was going to be an important part of that. And I got very lucky. I, um, I helped a friend become a judge uh, right out of law school in my first year. And during that time that I worked with her, I met all of the people that I would need to know, you know, in the future for me to make a run. Mm. And it was a year that um, our assemblyman, I was living in Ravina at this time, our assemblyman decided that he was going to run for statewide office. And so I always credit John Faso with being brave enough to put his name on a ballot Mm. to run statewide to open up an opportunity for me to contemplate very early in my career a run for the state assembly. And Mm. then um, it was a redistricting year year and our town got moved into another district but I did take the opportunity to run for the state assembly at that point um, and wasn't successful but not surprisingly um, we ran really hard it was a very close race it was a closer race than that particular assemblyman had ever run in the past mm. so we did give it a good a good go but that's when I pivoted into government at that point and went and worked for the legislature gave me the great opportunity to really see how the systems work um how you make a law what the stages are who's part of that the whole industry of government there are lots of professionals that are part of it and each one has a very distinct role so that we can think as widely and broadly as we can about a law or a proposed law to try to mitigate unintended consequences to the best of our ability. Mm-hmm. And so I got to learn about that. And then one of our United States senators had an opening in her office, and I was pretty sure I didn't want that job, but they were pretty sure they did want me to have that job. Um, and so when a United States senator asked you to come and help them, you don't say no. So I got the opportunity to work for one of our United States senators, Hillary Clinton. And at that time, I got to represent 20 counties, which then we reduced to 15 because that was a large swath of the state. Mm. But I got to learn everything about those counties. I learned about every one of the schools and the hospitals and how old the pipes were in the road and what the economic development was Mm. and um, what people needed and how federal government, state government, and local municipal governments work together and complemented each other. Something I never would have had the opportunity to do had I not gone and worked with her. And then at that point, um, she ran for re-election. That was why I was asked to come and work with her to be the liaison with the state legislature and then also to, um, to you know, sure up and make sure that she knew all the people she needed to know to run for re-elect in those areas. And then um, our congressman, decided to retire and I took the opportunity to run for his seat in Congress because I had been working that whole territory uh, for our United States Senator and I knew everything about that area. I knew it inside and out and what we needed in our member of Congress. And so I felt very ready to be a part of that. And the things that you talked about strike me as somebody who's just listening to how you were, you were, gaining experience and being formed in your in your ability to serve it's not very glamorous stuff it's pipes and infrastructure you know it's so interesting i think a lot of us picture uh 
you know, an elected official's picture being on a, on a wall at a post office or somewhere, but, but no, it's, it's about really nuts and bolts, uh, the fabric of what, what keeps things running. And your, your elected officials should understand that, you know, there are taxes that we pay all together because we can buy more in bulk. So things like our infrastructure are very important because that's what we're buying together. You know, we're buying all kinds of different things with our taxpayer dollars and elected officials should understand how to best utilize that purchasing power to the best of our ability. So, and and it goes beyond that, but I mean, you know, that's a part of it. And so I was very excited to be able to, to run for office because I felt different from my first run where I happened to be in the right place at the right time. This time I was not only in the right place at the right time, but I also had learned much more about the job and learned much more about the area that I was going to represent and could do an even better job. Um, and so, you know, I got into the race and we were 25%, you know, we were up by 25 points right off the bat Ooh. and maintained that, um, that lead and had a lot of support. Um, my United States Senator was running for president at the same time. And so it was exciting to be a part of, of that history. Um, there were a lot of people running for president and a lot of people running for this particular seat. Both were open seats at the time. Wow. So, um, so there were a lot of people to meet and, you know, we ran really hard and I had an outstanding team. All of the people who worked on my team are all doing amazing things in affecting government in many ways. But I would say probably one of the people I'm most proud of is Melissa DeRosa, who's the first and young, first woman and youngest person to be named secretary to the governor. Mm. Um, she was my campaign manager and she was one of the youngest campaign managers for a congressional race also. And she did an outstanding job. And I'm, I'm just glad that the work that we did together helped springboard her, but, but all mm. of my team have ended up in wonderful places, but, um, we ran really hard. And then one of our dear friends now, Congressman Taco, uh, the one thing I would tell you, if you, if you have to lose, lose to a friend who votes the way you would vote. Because, ah. um, having the Congressman now sit there, um, he, he's done, you know, a good job. It's a hard job that he has. Um, you know, I would have loved to have been a member of Congress, but if not me, I was so thrilled that it was him. And it was a big, a big disappointment because it looked like all of the work I had done leading up to that point was now coming in line because this was the next step. Going to Congress made perfect sense and made sense out of all of the experience I had had sort of lucked into up to that point Mm. that it looked purposeful Mm. and so the loss became very confusing um Mm -hmm. it was devastating and hard uh because we really had worked very hard and it was probably the biggest disappointment and surprise that i had had in my life at that point um how old were you was i was um 38. 38 years old, which it, it strikes me that is, uh, it feels like a really important age. I mean, that's, you know, completing, you were, you were a young person in the eyes of, of the world, but, but not green at all. 38 no, is quite and an I age. Thought I, 
And I thought I shouldn't have been considered young, but everyone said that to me. I thought 38 was like an established age, but, you know, I'm 50 now, so I look at 38. It was probably <laughs> not too young to be a member of Congress by far. It certainly is an entry-level job and some degrees, you know, to government. But, um, yeah, it was it was a charm. I had, one could say I had had quite a charmed life that I was 38 before I had the first major disappointment in my career. Uh. Um, but, you know, but that's what happened. But at that point, you know, something else had happened during that congressional race. And, um, I had met, um, my soon to be husband, um, while I was running for that race. Mm. And so, my life had also foreshadowed every every now and again where the fork was going to hit the you know come in the road i had the luxury of having some foreshadowing to see some of the opportunities that might arise if something were to change or shift mm. and um eric had already come into my life and i recognized that had i won my race for Congress, the chances were that that relationship was not going to move forward because I was going to live in Washington, D.C. I was going to be only home on the weekends. Mm. Um, and the likelihood of having a relationship when I needed to work my district on the weekends, it just wasn't likely that somebody was going to sign up to want to <laughs> have a life partnership with somebody who is now a member of Congress. So I did recognize that they were probably going to be an either-or um, opportunity. And so the day that I had to give my concession speech, which was oh. a blur, I do know that I came off the the stage of delivering my acceptance speech to hug Eric and say that he was by far the silver lining because oh. we would be able to start a life. And that, oh. and the way I looked at it is, you know, the Lord asked me, to step up and I did and I gave people a choice and I think a really good choice um, to make on who they wanted their candidate to be. But maybe I was just going to have a normal life with a bigger than life personality. Mm. And that's what Eric had. And that relationship was everything I had waited for, everything I thought that a life partner should be. And I recognized that. Um, can we pause there for a second? I would love to pause there for just a moment because I think there's a couple of things that if I were listening to this, I would want Father Scott to, to ask about with a little more detail because it's so interesting. First of all, let's start with, with something that you've said several times. I've heard you throughout the time I've known you refer to God as the Lord. Earlier in our talk today, you were saying, you know, as a child, you were wondering why would the Lord allow a person to be born with a disability, with a with a with a struggle, with something like that? And you just said that the Lord was leading you. A couple of questions for you about that. One of them is, you're. A, I love the title, the Lord. You know, it's not it's not very often used by people, especially I would say by people who uh, work in in you know really diverse secular. Uh, settings like a lawyer or a politician. The Lord is a title that kind of suggests um, submission to, to, to a presence in your life that is, that is, is leading you is, is, is more powerful than you are. Almost like it's the Lord is almost, it's a very clear understanding that there's a higher power at work. Can you say more about that? Well, I think it's a little bit more intimate. And so my grandmother, um, Nancy Kirk, who we called Mima, always 
referred to God as the Lord. Mm. I'll tell you a funny story. One time um, when my grandparents were very ill and coming towards the end of life, they lost. She's like, <laughs> I can't even tell the story without laughing because mm. I was so taken aback. When I got to the house, she was looking everywhere, like going through everything. I'm like, Mima, what's the matter? She's like, I lost the Lord. I can't find the Lord. And I, and I <laughs> <me>. she lost. <laughs> somebody had delivered communion to the house and she had misplaced it. Oh. Um, and, 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 but that was the day she always referred to God as the Lord. And mm. But that day when she was referring to the physical host as the Lord, I understood the much more intimate meaning that calling God the Lord was oh. versus just God. And so um, even right to the very end, she was a great... Um, person who lived her faith through example, not, you know, through piety, but on her sleeve as we're not supposed to, but rather just through example in that she lived her faith. And, and so she referred to the, to God as the Lord. And I just have done it ever since I've, I felt it was a much more intimate, true presence in my life, mm. um, referring to God as the Lord. It's so beautiful when you say it. I did not know that story, but I feel as you say it uh, that I've known all along in a felt, I had a felt sense that that, that was present for you because it's very tender when you say it. And uh, I don't want to make you self-conscious throughout the rest of our conversation about it, but it's a very, it's beautiful and it's always stood out to me. It's also interesting because um, in the, uh, in the more medieval understanding of like Lord and serf, it's become a bit politicized in some religious circles. You know that the Lord is uh, is is part of patriarchy and and can be. There's a lot of folks that would would be careful not to use a term that that for them is triggering. And for you, it contains none of that. It no, is so even, intimate. That's actually I didn't ever even thought of it like that. It makes me a little mortified. Well, I love, I love that it's, it just shows how authentic it is. It's so, it's so authentic. It is for somebody who understands the, uh, the need to be mindful of constituencies, you know, somebody who's been a politician and knows that you, you represent a lot of people. It's so, I, I would doubt that anyone's ever been offended by you saying it in any way, because it doesn't, it comes from such a deep place inside of you. It's really beautiful, really beautiful. Another thing I'd like to say just before we move on. I think a lot of us have seen concession speeches that if we really cared about a candidate were very hard to watch. We anybody who has empathy has whether they like a candidate or not has seen a candidate walk up to give a concession speech and just filled with the the common humanity of oh this is really hard. This is a moment. It's it, it's a it's a it feels as though a person who has to give a concession speech has been asked to have one of their most private, difficult moments on a stage. Mm -hmm. Can you say anything about what you've taken with you from giving a concession speech? Um, I would, so it's never the speech you want to give. So it's not the one that you have practiced the most or thought about the most, mm. but it's one that you know is very likely. And mm. the piece about a concession speech is it it's congratulating 
people who also did a very good job and thanking people who put all of their faith in you. And so what I would tell you hurts about a concession speech is not that I lost for me, but that I lost for all of those people who voted for me Mm. and all of those people who joined me in the journey Mm. because that's who I let down. And that's what makes a concession speech hard. Not because I'm not a member of Congress, but because those people believed and wanted it to happen and now it didn't happen for them. And so that's why concession speeches are so hard because it's not your loss. Mm. It's all people who came every day to your headquarters to make phone calls or walked door to door, knocked on doors and asked people to vote for you because they believed in you. Mm. That's the person that you're giving the concession speech for to Mm. think because whoever has that kind of, Oh, I know. It makes me want to cry to sit and think about it. But, you know, people gave up their time and their talent and their Mm. treasure and and said that they thought my ideas were the ideas that they wanted to see. And to not be able to bring it over the finish line for them was so disappointing and hard. Mm. Uh, It was hard. So, um, but I do think that you know going in that there's a 50% shot that this isn't going to end the way that you want it to. Mm. And um, this is where sports come in because winning is important, but losing well is much more important because that's where you teach for the next generation to Mm. come because we need to be able to recognize that we fight hard on the court or on the field but we support even harder those who win and mm. and are there to make sure that ideals move forward. And so, you know, you need to be able to lose as well as you win. And that was something that I learned playing sports. It was certainly much more fun to win. You know, I was lucky to be on a team that won the state championship. And then I went to college and was on a team that didn't win. And that was a very different experience. But mm. it's almost more important to lose well um because there are more people than just yourself involved in a loss oh you oh my gosh there's so many things that that occur to me as you say that one of them is the scripture that says the last shall be first you know the one who comes in second actually has the opportunity to be the first in in showing character the other thing i've got to just say is do you I won't, you don't have to answer this because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's more rhetorical. The number of people, myself included, who have not done something in life because they are afraid of failure, because they are unwilling to put their life in the balance where there's a 50% chance that they'll be the one conceding. And you can't win. I mean, you can't succeed if you don't. Failure is part of learning. I mean, Mm. the one thing that's happened in the United States for sure is like, we think failure is, let's say New York. In New York, failure is like unacceptable. We don't like to fail. New Yorkers are big believers in, you know, it's, it's great to be from a state that we always feel like we are winners, right? (laughs) When you go to California and you go to Silicon Valley, you know, you don't get to be the CEO of a company if you haven't 
failed. Mm. They measure your success by your number of failures because failure is required to recognize that learning has occurred. And so we, you know, on the East Coast really need to start reevaluating failure because there is no succeeding if you don't learn what comes of failure. So I just think we need to look at the word a little bit differently. It's not to say that I like to, I don't Mm. like to fail, Mm. but there certainly is always, someone had said to me in my first race, you know, you don't need to win to be a superstar. You just need to lose well. Uh Um, And that was, I didn't even understand that at the time. I think today I understand that much better than I did when I was 32, what that meant. But, Mm. um, you know, but we all need to try to live to the greatest our gifts that we've been given will bring us because mm. we wouldn't have those gifts if we didn't. And trying is a part of succeeding and failure is a part of winning because the next time you know how to do it better. Mm. Mm. But people ask me all the time, will I run again? Not today. <laughs> and that's not because I don't want to lose. It's, you know, the job has changed. The way you get the job has changed. And maybe it's time for some different people with different thoughts. I mean, I, you know, mm. so I'll never say never to anything. Um, because life keeps showing me every time I say, yeah, no, I don't need to do that again. It will show up. That will come later in our conversation. But, you know, saying never is always a silly, a silly thing to do. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for pausing there with us and, and letting us absorb some of that because I think you just, I know that you you just really went with some, some salve to a point of, a part of me that is, I didn't realize needed to be soothed. And uh, I really, I can only imagine the listeners who are having big moments of aha and healing because of what you just shared. So I really thank you. Let's go to that silver lining now. You told Eric, you are for sure the silver lining of this very difficult day. What was, what was the silver lining time like? How, how did, how did loving him help to, uh, heal your disappointment from what you'd been through? Sure. Uh, I don't even know where to start to tell you. Um, he was somebody who saw the world in a, in a positive light and things weren't always easy. And I probably knew him in the nine hardest years of his life. Mm. Um, but they were probably the nine most fulfilled years of my life. Mm. Um, you know, I had gotten to run for Congress and then the, the way he viewed the world, he thanked people for being his friend. He Mm. thanked people for loving him. He thanked people for helping him. He made it a point to let people know that he loved them and that he valued them as a colleague or a friend or a child or um, a loved one. And those are life's lessons that you don't think of. I mean, you think people know that they're as wonderful as they are because you think that they're wonderful. But if you don't tell somebody that they're as wonderful as you think they are, why would they know that? Mm. Because 
each of us doesn't think of ourselves as wonderful. So we need to be told when somebody thinks that we are. And, and he was so good at teaching that lesson and to making sure that people understood that. One day we came through a, a toll booth and he complimented the, the person in the toll booth on something that I was taken aback that he would compliment on because I thought it was funny. And mm. he looked at me and he said, that person smiled and had a smile in their day because I, I complimented them. And what difference does it make on whether or not we liked that thing or didn't like that thing? That person did because that's why they had that thing. So mm. complimenting and recognizing that it was special gave them a warm feeling in their day. And don't we each deserve that? Mm. And Eric Lewis was the greatest at that. He was a Renaissance man who knew how to make every person feel special, whether he gave you his coat or, or helped a gentleman. One time we were out to dinner and a man approached us while we were standing outside and asked for money. And Eric walked away from me and took him to a different restaurant. And instead of giving him money, bought him a beer and asked him why and what he wanted it for, and how did he get to this place, and and put real value into that person, and then mm. handed him money, and mm. told him what he thought the man should do with the money. Mm. And three months later, we were walking into a different restaurant, and a man in a suit and shoes came running down the street, calling for Eric. We turned and looked and didn't know who the man was, and, and the man came up to us and said, do you remember me? And Eric said, no. And he said, I'm the man that you took to this restaurant and gave money and spent two hours with. Oh, my. And now I have a job. And that's what valuing people means, mm. is taking time to be there. And that's what Eric did. And that's the kind of life partner that I always knew I wanted to have. And so he loved me as well as he loved the world. Mm. And um, that's what I thought the Lord thought I should do is you, you're not going to be, so Congress isn't where you can bring the greatest light to people, but being with Eric. Two of you can share that in society. Mm. And so I was very positive that that was where I should be. And my career took another move. And I was running an advocacy organization for women's health care. And, and through that work and through mine and Eric's life that we could share bigger with as many people in many different ways, philanthropic work volunteering dinner parties with friends who were divorced who on Sunday night whether you had your children during the weekend or not you found yourself alone so we opened our table to share with dads so they would have something to do at six o'clock every Sunday night mm. whether they had been with their children or didn't mm. um, we had I thought the Lord brought Eric into my life to be to share that kind of love that I knew I had and then found somebody who shared equally. And I didn't recognize that was a gift 
that needed to be used in a bigger way. And that's what I saw was the silver lining and learned was the silver lining that if I wasn't going to get to be in Congress, these were the gifts that the Lord wanted me to share with our community in a bigger mm. way. So, so I did. And on days that I would get so angry at Eric, I could evenly, equally run the list of things that Eric brought to my life mm. that made my life a better, more full place to be without hesitation. Mm. And, and the list was always much longer than the list of why I was angry with him. <laughs> oh. um, and so that made it even more difficult when Eric got sick um, because I didn't understand now you know, you brought this big, huge personality into my life and now you took the personality away because first when Eric got sick, he lost his short-term memory. Oh. And so we lived two and a half years with Eric not being able to build on what he had done the hour before or oh. the day before or oh, who dear. he had interacted with. So... That changed a lot, and there was a lot of soul searching for, you know, why am I doing, you know, why is this the next step? Oh. And what I knew the next step was, was to love Eric truly, to give him that sense of love that he had given to all of us. Because I'm not sure that prior to that point in his life, he had been truly loved. Uh. Like, he... Like he truly loved others. And so that was something I knew I could do. And the two of you brought out something new and fresh and wonderful in each other. Mm -hmm. Wow. Tra Tracy, you were, you were 42 when he was first diagnosed. And it sounds like the symptoms were pretty rough from the beginning to lose short term memory as a young man. Mm -hmm. That's, you, however, have revealed to us something that, that we know about you now. You are an idealist and you are a positive person and you always look for where the light is. Did you hold a lot of hope for his healing? Oh, in the beginning, we thought for sure that we would be able to fix it. Mm. So in the first year, we were sure we would be able to fix it. We went to every doctor that we could go to. We in with insurance we were lucky enough that we could afford to go to doctors that didn't take our insurance or any insurance um and we didn't we couldn't um part of the problem was that not only did he not have a short-term memory but he was sleeping 20 or better hours in a day and so that takes a toll on your body as well so the virus he had lyme's disease and the virus was ravaging his body. He didn't have a strong immune system. He had fought a brain tumor and mm. then got pneumonia a couple of years in a row and then got mono cough from one of his kids, which was kind of funny, and then got Lyme's disease. And so his immune system had been attacked every year for five years mm. prior to the Lyme's disease. So there wasn't a lot of immunity there. And so it was, you know, they were silly things that he had that we don't think of, a, you know, mono or, 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 um, pneumonia or even you know radiation is something that ravages your body the way it does but when your immune system is compromised when you get a bacteria like Lyme's disease um, it has the ability to wreak havoc and unfortunately because his immune system was compromised it just never was able to get strong enough to beat back the bacteria 
And so um, the antibiotics didn't help and compromised him even further. Mm. So we did a year and a half, a year that way. And then probably by March of the second year, so it was January of 12, um, 13, and then in January of 13, I was pretty well aware that we weren't going to beat this and that he wasn't going to be able to get through this and um, that his body was getting weaker and weaker and weaker um, from all of it. And so um, January is when I thought it, March is when I started saying it out loud. I didn't think we'd get through August. Um, and then in June, he perforated an ulcer, which resulted um, in, he ended up in septic shock because he was sure he could muscle through it. He didn't think he had perforated an ulcer. I mean, mm. He thought the pain in his belly would go away. So we waited 20 hours before we went to the hospital to have it looked at. And by that point, his body was in septic shock. And so sepsis, uh, well, he third degree burned all of his internal organs and was in septic shock. So those oh my are goodness. Oh, that this very weak, ravished body just couldn't overcome it. The positive was all of the antibiotics to get rid of the sepsis also beat back the Lyme's disease for three weeks. And so the man I had met that I hadn't seen in a year and a half or better, maybe two years at that point, came back with a sparkle and twinkle in his eye. And we got to have back for two and a half weeks that loving of our life and our friends and our family and being with people again before the Lyme disease came back with a vengeance mm. and the burned organs just really couldn't um, couldn't overcome all of that. So mm. um, we ultimately did lose him in November, but I got a lot more time. Remember, I thought probably August. Mm. So we bought extra months and extra time, and I did get those three weeks of the man I had fallen in love with. I got to see him again, and lots of times when we take care of loved ones that are on the waning side of life, you don't get to see that strong, vibrant person again once mm. they get sick and weak, and I did. So that was a wonderful piece to have after a long time of caregiving, and certainly my caregiving months and you know two and a half years is nothing compared to some of the other people you've spoken with or or nearly some of the people who are listening to this so i do recognize it was a short time and i got to love him truly and cherish him every minute that i had left and one of my girlfriends said that to me i said you know what am i going to do if he actually really is going to die and she said you're going to go home and hold him and love him and cherish him to the very last minute that you have. And I did do that. You got to do that. You you have a tremendous gift for gratitude, considering how terribly painful this is, that that all of the little the little things that the 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 relenting of the Lyme disease for a short time, the the ability to have him in your beautiful home together. Um, it's it's remarkable. I just, I've never made this connection until now, but he died at the time of the year when we think about gratitude all the time. Mm -hmm. He was, We're his passing. The day before Thanksgiving. The day before Thanksgiving. His favorite holiday, too. Oh. The year is 2013? 14. 2014. Um, what did you say to God on that day? 
I had talked with God through the, you know, the Lord and I have a, a, a running conversation. Mm. <laughs> so the Lord and I spoke a lot about what was going on when we were going through all of this. And at one point, and this is one of those conversations that I think we all have that are caregivers, that then we go back and question if we caused this to happen. But I did make the prayer to the Lord that if you found Eric to be as good of a man as I did, that the suffering time could be shorter and that I would be happy and and recognize and know that we live on this earth to go to heaven Mm. and that Eric had lived a life as a, a good, loving, generous man and that the Lord would take him to heaven. And that I would be okay if that happened. <laughs> Little did I know, I don't think it really was, but at the time I thought mm. that that was the better outcome for Eric than the life that he was living because he was so big and full of life. He was sleeping and he had no life and he had, you know, he didn't, he was suffering and in a lot of pain and, and I thought Eric had lived a life that was deserving that the Lord wanted and mm. that was deserving of heaven. And I was willing to, you know, let him go. And the Lord and I had that conversation and oh. then I regretted it a million times over. <laughs> um, but I don't regret it for Eric. Mm. I, I think heaven's the better, obviously the better place. We all live here to go there. I love that you said that. And I think that that, you you are confident about how this story ends, which allows you to have the courage to live all the chapters. Faith is definitely the underpinning of of what I do. Faith you know, is the underpinning of how I view my life, and each exciting thing that happens, and each harder part that happens. I. We, you and I have talked, and there's a word that you have used to describe your grief that um, I've heard other people use, but when you say it, it strikes me as incredibly evocative of, of what you experienced. You've used the word shattered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grief. Yeah. Grief is shattering. Yeah. Those, those years, so 2014, um, you are... At that point, you are 44 years old. Yeah. You have now lost your life partner, who you had chosen as your life partner, at age yeah. 44. What was 2015 like? <laughs> I would say well, I got up every day and I breathed every day. And I took a shower and got dressed every day. And that was probably as much as I thought I had to do every day. Mm. And I did a lot of other things, lots of days too. It was, you know, not easy. Um, I thought I was going to be okay because I understood and that I knew that Eric was in a better place. Mm. And I thought that as long as I knew that Eric was okay, that I was good at being I was good at being me. I had mm. been me by myself a lot, a lot of my life. So I thought I was going to be fine just being me again. And in 2015, I found out that that wasn't the case, that I was good at being we. Mm. And going back to being me was 
I never thought about, well, now what about me? When I spoke with the Lord about Eric going to heaven, I never thought about when, what was that going to mean for me staying here? And, um, you know, there are things that you have said to help describe death that has given great comfort to members of my family, mm. but has only made me more angry. I've told you before mm. that, you know, there's a continuum of time and, mm. and time in heaven is very different than our time here. And, mm-hmm. and we are there when they get there. And, you know, there are days that I have looked at being here and like, why do I need to be here anymore? He and I were so yeah. great at being a two. Can't we start this all over again and be together in heaven? Do I really need to be here? Yes. <laughs> um, so 2000, not that I would ever hurt myself, but you right. know, like, do I really need to be here? And, you know, 2015, I changed jobs and, um, and looked for I said to you, you know, I saw the foreshadowing of Eric and, and myself if I didn't make it to Congress. I didn't see, and I didn't mm. pay attention to what was the foreshadowing about what was going to happen when it was just me. Mm. I had loved him so fully and so truly, really felt like I had checked that box. I, you know, I said to people, I don't really need to have that in my life. You know, I, I've done that well. It was fulfilled. I felt confident that I had done it right well and with the right person and now I needed to find the professional side of my life where I was going to find fulfillment because it was usually the personal or the professional side of my life was running better than the other Mm. well now you know my idea and the personal side of my life has been done now Mm. I would have great friends and great family that has lots of love entwined in in all of them so it wasn't that I wasn't going to love or be loved I just didn't need to be intimately in love with one person Mm -hmm. because Eric had checked that box and so I really looked to the professional side of my life and you know I changed how I was part of the industry of government um I the job that I had had me in the public eye. I needed to come out of the public eye because I didn't want to make any mistakes. Mm. Um, because, you know, the issue that I worked on was a very important and controversial issue. And so if I made a mistake, it could hurt, you know, things. And mm-hmm. so I mm-hmm. changed what I was doing um, to give myself a little bit of quiet. And I was with a wonderful group of people who gave me a great opportunity to get my feet back under me. Um, and in that time that I was doing that job, trying to find what just being me was going to mean and and why. Why not be a member of Congress? And then why not have my life with Eric that I found such great meaning? Mm. And what was the purpose of not having those two things that seemed to make perfect sense mm. earlier in my life? Mm. What was the next piece that the Lord was handing down that I needed all of that time in my life to not have a job that was fully encompassing, to not have a love of my life that was fully encompassing? What was I supposed to be doing that I needed all of this time cleared up (laughs) Mm. Um, and that I still struggle with today um, looking for you know I have a I have a wonderful career and I work with really great people and the firm I'm in now and the firm I was in before um, but I was having a hard time getting myself out of grief Mm. Um, and then um, the Lord brought cancer and 
And I thought, I said, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm not paying enough attention to myself. I get it. The I'm Lord to be brought cancer. To the Lord brought cancer. So that I would pay attention oh. and refocus my my attention off of Eric and him being in heaven and focus my attention on me and myself. And what better way to do that but then, you know, to have something that was drawing of great attention. And, you know, I mean, you should give cancer great attention, but you should also give it, you know, the respect it deserves, not more respect than it deserves. Oh, give it. Oh, now Tracy, help us understand. I think a lot of people's jaws are on the floor because (laughs) you are a real person living in our community. Yes. You are a person with a a great big life. Yes. You have a, a name that has been known in households in some circles for a long time, but now let's, let's go back. 2008, you run and do not win a seat in Congress. You're 38 years old. You wind up um, forming the relationship of your life with Eric, who you love so deeply. He gets sick in 2012 and dies in 2014. You're 44 years old. What year did cancer come? I was 46. I turned 47. So end of 16, beginning of 17. Oh, my. But it really was. So but it, it wasn't like that. So I had hurt myself. I thought I had an injury. Um, I really didn't think it was a big deal. And then you know, we had an MRI because we thought it was an injury. We find out that, you know, nope, it's not an injury. I <laughs> still not forget my younger sister was with me the day we found out that it was actual cancer. And we didn't know what kind. We didn't know that it was going to be something that was simple. It could have been something very, very bad. But I will tell you, the Lord has blessed my family with mm. everything that is the hardest that, you know, the hardest news that you might get, we have been very lucky to get in the easiest way. So mm. or at least that's our perspective. So I end up I end up with cancer. We the doctors think it's a really bad cancer. It turns out to be lymphoma, which for what they were looking at was the easiest thing that I could have. So we ended up with the best diagnosis of a yucky diagnosis. And then we find out that I only need to do a little bit of radiation. It's in a bone, so it's not near any organs. I do radiation for a month. I don't have any side effects because it's not affecting any of my other organs. And so I started telling people because it was so embarrassing because we told people I had cancer because we thought it was going to be a big, bad cancer. It turned out, so I started telling people I had cancer light because it was really easy cancer to handle. And I just needed to be on crutches for three months. And so I was grateful that I had cancer light. I wasn't saying it to be condescending or taunting Mm. in any way, but to be thankful Mm. that I had got, that although I had cancer, it wasn't significant. It was an easy treatment plan. I tolerated the treatment plan very well. And that this was embarrassing in a way, you know, but I recognized that I needed to pay attention to myself. And so I did. So during the time I was taking care of cancer, I did pay attention to myself and I thank the Lord that I only had to have cancer light and that was great. And then I would tell you weeks after treating cancer light, the grief came pouring back in in a way that I didn't even know what to do with. And 
the Lord and I continue to have conversations about, I don't know how to get myself out of this. You know, I, I, I talked to folks and I did a lot of reading and, you know, it's, I wasn't ignoring what was happening. Mm. Um, but, um, I was done with my crutches at the end of June and by the end of August I had cancer again. Mm. And I would tell you, I don't know that it was cancer again. It was probably there and it just took a little bit longer to show up. So this mm. time the doctor said, you're, you're going to have chemo. <laughs> and so I decided that, all right, maybe I didn't pay enough attention with radiation. So the only way I was going to get through the grief was that I needed something as significant as chemo to pay close enough attention to myself. What I will tell everyone is chemo did it. I was paying attention to myself. By the time I finished that cancer treatment, I had gotten enough attention circled back on me and off of was Eric okay in heaven because he is okay in heaven. He is okay in heaven. He's just great in heaven and Mm. that I could, um, that I could take care of myself, which I always knew I could, but I mean, then I would focus back on myself and focus off of, take the focus off, off of those two and a half years and the loss of Eric, but now I'll be able to focus on me and that I wasn't abandoning him by focusing me on me with regard to just my life. And, um, so the thing I can say to you about cancer is Thank God I only had cancer. Thank God the Lord gave me something that I could treat. And every day I can feel better and stronger. And maybe cancer will come back and maybe cancer will take me a little bit early. Or maybe having these treatments will mean I have a little bit shorter of a life. But I have my whole life back. I mm. I feel as healthy as I felt before. I have a much better respect and understanding of um, my mortality than I had before. Mm. And so I am thankful that I only had cancer and that I was able to treat my cancer and that I am able to have my whole life. And so when I said to you, cancer needs to be given the respect that it deserves, but not more respect than it needs. Mm. That's what I mean. That is brilliant. I cancer needs to be given the respect it deserves but not more than it needs uh i have a memory of going to your home for dinner and you were um you had finished the chemotherapy um you were still experiencing the effects of it you were still tired but not as tired as you had been the bone wearying tired that you had experienced um you still had no hair and you were Absolutely beautiful. Well, uh, with your permission, we'll share with our uh, our our listeners an image of 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 you bald and radiant. Oh, thank you. But <laughs> truly, but one of the things you said to me in the midst of that was that you were thinking of your life like whitewater rafting, and it uh-huh. just struck me as such a powerful metaphor. Can you share that with us? Sure. I share this a lot when I speak to um, school-aged kids or college kids, too. So I don't know for those of you who have ever been whitewater rafting. When you go to a rafting company, what they do is they teach you, you know, how to paddle and what the commands are. So what they say to you after they've taught you how to paddle and, and when they yell the commands, what they mean and why you would do things, what they say is, well, you know, somebody might fall out of this boat while we're going down the rapids. And if you happen to be the person who falls out of the boat, what we want you to do is hold on to your life vest and pull your knees up to your chest. We'd like you to just ride down the rapids. 
when we get to the bottom, we'll meet you in the quiet pool that will be at the bottom of the rapids. And we'll bring you back in the boat and we'll ride the next rapid together. Mm. But if you put your feet down or you try to swim to the side, you're going to bounce against the rocks. You could break an arm or a leg. You could possibly even drown. Mm. So don't fight the current. Just pull your feet up so that they don't hit the rocks and hold on to your life vest and just go over the rocks mm. and get to the quiet pool. Don't fight it. Well, mm. I can tell you, Father Scott, <laughs> I'm really good at talking about that. I'm not really good at not fighting my rapids. I think I fight my rapids for a while before I recognize I need to just pick my feet up and ride it. Mm. But I do think that I, I do find when I pick my feet up and I ride the rapid, the rapid of knowing that I have faith that the quiet pool is at the bottom, I get to the quiet pool a lot quicker. Ah. And then I can survive to ride the next rapid after joining everyone in the quiet pool. Oh, boy. And what I love about that is there are, so on the great journey, you've already told us we, we live here so that we can go to heaven. We're here on a journey to heaven, which is the great quiet pool, the great quiet pool at the end of it all. But there are many rapids along the way and pools along the way. Mm -hmm. I, I love that image. I love that image. What, where, where are you now, Tracy? Are you in a so rapid? Are you in a pool? So I'm in a pool. I am definitely in a pool. So I had shared with you and I had shared with lots of people who you know, I was young when I was widowed. Um, and I said, you know, I don't really need to do that again. I can't imagine doing that again. I didn't have children. It was something I thought I would have in my life, but, um, I just, I guess I didn't pay close enough attention, um, mm. to make sure that was happening. Mm. And so I never bifurcated my brain. I never knew that you could truly love more than one person at a time or more than one person. Um, mm. And so I really didn't know how I would ever be able to do that. But I can tell you that um, the Lord has brought that back into my life. And so mm. my life of being with Eric taught me how to truly love another person mm. and appreciate them. And, um, and so now Michael gets to be in my life and I get to have him another gracious, gentle, thoughtful, um, bigger than life person um, in a different way, different way than Eric was bigger than life. Michael is, but I certainly, I, I, I grabbed onto my life vest eventually and picked my feet up through the rapids of the last six years, but I certainly landed in a pool and oh. um, I'm at a firm that I enjoy very much and, and are, were in need of my talents and are benefiting from what I have to offer. So I feel like I'm working at, at a high level of my capacity. Um, mm. And, you know, I have great friends and a wonderful, loving family. And so I would say this very second, although we were in um, a worldwide pandemic, a time of great social unrest, and um, political turmoil mm. uh, with a vacuum of leadership. I think there are a lot of things on the outside world that are that are hard, but I can tell you in my own little small part of my very own life, I sit in a pool. Thank, thank you, God, 
for 2020 being a year with a pool in it for Tracy and for some others. I, I really, because a lot of, you know, as a, as a society, as you said, we're in the rapids, but that can be true. What one of the things you're teaching us, I think is so beautiful is that you being in a pool right now does not change the fact of what you went through in, in 2008, what 2012 was like, what 2014 was like, what, what it was like to, to be visited with cancer. That all still is, is yours. That's all part of your journey. And, the, and, and, and we've heard carrying it, you carry it with grace, but not easily. It's not easy to carry all that. And yet that can be true. And at the same time, you can be in a pool. Mm -hmm. It's all oh, the, the paradox of it all that life can be that tragic and that beautiful. And it's all part of the same experience. So the one thing I do want to say is that I don't view my life as tragic. Mm. I don't view my life as devastating and I don't view it as sad. I view my life as very, and even when I was in the middle of caring for Eric and grieving Eric and having um, cancer and treating cancer and, you know, not being successful in my career where I thought I was going to, never did I feel as though my life was void of joy or love. I mean, that's always been, my life is a very happy, joy loving filled life. Mm. Even when times are hard, I don't ever think that I walk by myself or that I'm devoid of joy mm. or love. So I, I do just need to say that I do not view my life as devastating in any way mm. and I don't think in any way my life has been harder than anyone else's I think we all have things these were just happened to be mine and you just happened to ask me to share them with people but I don't view them as they changed me because they taught me I don't feel like I got a bad hand I just think these are the ones that I got mm. all of us get different things but but I'm not. Sometimes I ask the Lord why it has to be so hard, but that doesn't mean that I'm not okay with the fact that, you know, we all get hard times and hard spots and there'll be more to come. But for as hard as, as hard as the heart is, is as joyous and glorious as the happy is. Mm. So sometimes you just have to have a little harder because your happy is going to be so much bigger. A lot of people believe with all their heart that everything happens for a reason. And and other people take a, the opposite view. They say it's not for a reason, it just happens and, and God is with us to help us through it. Where are you on this? For someone who's had so many things happen in your life, does it all happen for a reason or does it just happen? I believe that things happen for a reason. However, it's maybe a little hybrid in that we have free will. And so what happens, happens for a reason, but based on our choices and decisions and how we handle what's happening determines whether or not, how, how bad it gets. Like, do we make bad choices and so it happens in this way or do we make better choices and then it maybe the cross is less heavy for less long to bear. Mm. I mean, I think, and, and that was one of the ones my mother gave me when 
time was hard when I was in college, that Mm. the choices that we make when we face adversity help determine the fact that the Lord never gives you anything more than you can handle and that the life's lessons are here for a reason because you are to learn something from them. Mm. That's why they happen for a reason. Mm. And so are you going to learn the lesson determines whether or not more things need to happen in a certain way. So I guess that's how I look at life. It's powerful. And it's such a, what I like about it is it, it captures that kind of middle view, which allows there to be a mystery to it. And I've, the way I've heard some people say, and you can tell me if this resonates with what you're saying is maybe everything happens for a reason, or maybe it doesn't. What, what, what we know for sure is everything happens for a meaning. Yes. There is meaning. Isn't that beautiful? It happens for a meaning. It happens for a meaning. Tracy, you've endured so many things and you don't, you don't ask for a prize for that. As you've said, all of us have our things to endure, but yours have been, um, they've been really noteworthy. What have you learned about endurance from enduring? What to you is the key of that virtue of endurance? Yeah. Um, I I mean, having been an athlete, endurance is very important Mm. um, to ensure that you will be strong enough, whether it's 45 minutes to get through a basketball game or it's 80 years to get through a life. Um, The endurance is more so, you know, I talked about it in physical strength. And I think my endurance is in my, in this, what we're talking about, certainly it needed physical fitness, of which I probably wasn't at the best that I could be. Mm. Um, but it probably for me is more of my faith. And none of these things that happen have shaken my faith or, at, or made me question the Lord in a negative way. Mm. I never questioned why did this have to happen or why me or, and nor did I get mad. Mm. these things happen because this is these are things that needed to happen because I needed to to learn or, or take the meaning from them as you said mm. so I would say my endurance is is there you know I, I I'm someone who embraces change um, and so coronavirus is providing an opportunity for a shift um, and I think a shift that needs to happen I mm. hope the shift happens to kindness and joy as opposed to fear, selfishness, and hate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we have the ability to do that. And so maybe my one little piece is just to keep being part of hopefully joy and happiness as opposed to succumbing to selfishness and and Mm. judgment. Um, Mm. And so, you know, my hope is that we as a society – move from being self-absorbed and self-contained to viewing ourselves as community, a bigger unit that works for the good of each other, that we all rise together Mm. um, and, and that we see value in each other. May we all rise together and may we all see value in each other. I can't imagine a more beautifully uh, Christ-centered way of looking at, at people and at what's in front of us. I think that's beautiful. So I, I'd like to turn to the listeners for a moment now. Uh, Tracy has shared so generously. Talk about going deep into the well and, and bringing up 
incredibly life-giving water for us. So let's just take a moment and, and ponder and treasure some of the things that she has shared. What do you call God? She calls God the Lord from the, from the deepest, most intimate center of herself. Who is God for you? Who is the one who, who sustains you? What name would you give God? What do you take from her willingness to confront failure, to know that the way that we conduct ourselves in a time of disappointment shows way more about us and can offer more hope to more people than the way we conduct ourselves after a success? What did you take over the way that she cherished Eric and the way that she lived so beautifully those brief years that she had with the man that she truly hoped and expected would be her one and only throughout life? What does it mean to you that, as she has said, the Lord has brought her another wonderfully sensitive man these years later? to also share life with. For those of you who've been connected to cancer, what does it mean in your life to give cancer the respect it deserves, but not more than it deserves? Where are you in the rapids? What might you do to, to shift, to go with the flow, to pull your arms and legs in and to relax your way over the difficult bumps and flows to that pool that is tranquil, where Tracy now rests for a spell. Tracy Brooks, we cannot thank you enough for spending this time with us and encouraging us and sharing so beautifully from, from the life that you've had. I, I will tell you this, 50, as everybody knows, that's an auspicious year. That's a, that's a great age to be right in, the, right in the thick of things. My prayer is that you will continue to shine that beautiful light of yours just as brightly and even more brightly in the next five decades ahead. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you, Father Scott. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners. God bless you all.